Political Science. Welcome back to the POMEPS Middle East Political Science Podcast, our series of conversations with scholars working in the field. With us today is Elizabeth Kendall. She's a senior research fellow at Pembroke College at Oxford University and a scholar who's been working for years on the issues related to jihadism and terrorism in Yemen, um, as well as fascinating work on poetry. Elizabeth, welcome to the program. Thank you, Mark. So, why don't we start by just talking about how you became a scholar of jihadism in Yemen after beginning with your research on poetry and, uh, and Yemen. Just tell us a little bit about how you got here. Well, it's quite a, a circuitous route in a way, not obvious. I started my academic career working on Arabic literature, and I really was very immersed in that field for probably 15 years, Arabic language and literature. Including in Egypt, I uh, Including in Egypt, right. Uh, until I suddenly thought, you know, what is the relevance of this for what's going on in the Arab world today? And uh, I had an opportunity in particular to get into Yemen about six or seven years ago mm -hmm. into a tribal environment where poetry was still very rife. Uh, and I just thought, I'm going to see what kind of material I can pick up related to militant jihadist movements. I had actually noticed over the past um, maybe six or seven years since I'd been involved in running a centre for uh, um, advanced study of the Arab world, which was focused on mm -hmm, jihad and mm -hmm. martyrdom, that there was so much poetry being produced by militant jihadist movements and nobody was looking at it. So you started looking at the, the stuff online, you started listening to what people were saying on the ground. Like, How did you access this poetry? Yes, I had found it initially online, but I did know that the online magazines that I found were also being passed around in hard copy on the ground. And I could tell that Yemen was a real hot spot for this, possibly because you know, being the birthplace Mm -hmm. uh, essentially of Arabic poetry or the Arabian Peninsula in general being the birthplace of Arabic poetry it still was an oral culture particularly in a desert environment so I thought I'd go there and snoop around a bit and find out what was what was actually mm -hmm. happening and how much it still resonated on the ground. And you, and you find an active and vibrant uh, kind of living social life of, uh, of poetry. I did. Obviously not only jihadists. No, exactly. And it's quite important to make that distinction. I, I, well, I mean, tell us a little bit about that, the role mm. it plays in, uh, in kind of social life. Okay. So I actually did conduct a survey on this huh. in uh, eastern Yemen in 2012-2013, where I actually, together with a whole load of um, leading tribal figures, put together a questionnaire which asked them about their social and political aspirations. I've never published this work, uh -huh. actually. It's still on my list of things to do. But I sneaked in or snuck in a, a little uh, question about poetry huh. into that survey, where I simply asked, uh, how important is poetry in your daily life? And uh, of over 2,000 tribesmen and tribeswomen, 74% said either important or very important. That's fascinating. And that was on a scale of, you know, six different possible answers. And so and that was their daily lives. So that was really fascinating. Of course, I did not ask specifically about jihadist of poetry. Course. But what that said to me was 
This is no surprise, therefore, that militant jihadist mm -hmm. groups are using poetry to propagate their message when it clearly still resonates so strongly on the ground. So you began seeing then, uh, you know, these kinds of poems and they're being uh, published online, they're being uh, distributed. Um, what drew you to that as opposed to the other kinds of uh, expressions of poetry which you could have studied? I guess it was a fascination with how militant jihadist groups spread their ideas. And particularly, this is a puzzle mm -hmm. in illiterate environments where there is no access to the internet or very little. And my survey data at that time showed that there was only 3% access to the internet in these eastern areas of mm -hmm. Yemen. How was the message spreading? And I also felt that this was one aspect of jihad and terrorism studies that was completely neglected. Uh, everyone in the field was looking at position statements, theological material, um, how, how many people does the group have, where is it located, all of mm -hmm. the obvious logistics of it. And, and not just the logistics, but also what, it, what these groups were thinking doctrinally. But no one was really looking at the so-called softer side of jihad. Right. right. Uh, and about, you know, what do these guys do in their spare time? And why would they uh, waste time writing poetry when they could be training and killing people? This was fascinating to me. And this is this is an emerging research program. Uh, Thomas Heghammer, uh, right. my colleague, has this book that uh, and this really draw, drew attention to this in ways that I had never really thought of before as a as an interesting object of study. That's right. And you've been doing yeah. this for quite a while now. Yeah, and um, actually, oddly enough, Thomas was actually one of my first ever students. <laughs> but I think I learned more from him than he did from me. Um, and so, yes, he was one of the early people into jihadi culture, and he has a new book out on that, which is fantastic. So let's talk about the, the substance of it then. So what exactly are you seeing in these uh, in the poems that you study? What, what are the types of themes and, uh, and, 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 and poetic structures, I suppose, that you think allow this to be an important way of spreading ideas or kind of developing jihadist appeal? There are all sorts of themes that run through the poetry. Um, so, for example, it's not just, uh, it is about this, but it's not just about this, inspiring people to kill infidels and Americans. Um, it's also about mourning lost comrades. Uh, it's about trying to um, encourage new recruits by... Uh, furnishing them with a sense of belonging and identity. In fact, it, jihadist poetry has many of the same qualities as Arabic poetry in general. It mm -hmm. has the hijab, the uh, the madih. Yeah, the um, so so basically, it has um, lament, rifa. It has praise. It has lampooning. It has uh, hamasa, which is inspiring people and fusing them for the cause. It has all of that. But most importantly. Unlike Arabic poetry in general today, it is almost solely in classical Arabic and in the old Hasida form of two hemistitches and a mono rhyme. And this is terribly important because this is what makes it seem authentic and legitimate. Huh. It's not in colloquial Arabic, or very little of it is. And, and was it like that from the beginning or did it evolve that way? I know jihadist poetry, uh, I mean, I've only looked back to 
probably around the 1980s. But of course, it's been around since, mm-hmm. since well, uh, well, since Muhammad's times. Not we call that jihadist, but but mm-hmm. also since the Crusades. There's always been poetry that's been used in this context, and everything I've seen um, throughout the ages has tried to latch onto that sort of classical element, classical language, classical form classical tradition and classical themes. There's very little that isn't in that movie. But how would you compare that kind of classical poetry to what I suppose we would call like the, the ordinary poetry in Eastern Yemen? How, how, how do they um, interact or relate to each other in, in terms of um, you know, kind of these different clashing styles and formats? Yeah, there, there are some common denominators, but not many. The the poetry in eastern Yemen that's still used amongst the tribes is very much um, a sung poetry in the native Mehri language, or you know, or, mm-hmm. or it's related, uh, what we call modern Southern Arabian languages. Uh, so it's not actually in classical Arabic. The jihadist material is, as I said, in classical Arabic, and it's uh, generally recited rather than sung. You do also get sung mm-hmm. poetry, but you know, the the really hard-hitting, um, inspirational material is is recited. And do they tend to be, uh, you know, kind of the same poems being used across from Afghanistan to Yemen, or do they tend to be localized and specific to particular groups? Um, you tend to get some of the same lines of some of the same verses inserted into different poems but this is where it gets super interesting because a lot of the material that we think is newly created can actually be traced back to the classical poetic heritage Mm -hmm. it might have been manipulated a bit and so we'll find the same verses appearing in slightly different form within different groups so be slightly different in Yemen from how it might be in uh, Syria or Iraq but um but there are some core mainstream verses of people mm-hmm. like um Al-Mutanabbi uh he was a particular favorite uh or uh Mubarak that, that that crop up again and again and and Osama bin Laden himself was a was a real uh a fan of of picking up old verses and tweaking them slightly and uh, putting them into his new compositions. It's fascinating. So, and, and this is so interesting, but as a political scientist, we're not allowed to be interesting, right? <laughs> so, so if I were just go back to the way you began, one of these, uh, you know, mainstream terrorism researchers who wants to know why some groups win and some groups don't and, you know, the, have different levels of appeal and all of that, how does this approach um, of studying the culture and the, you know, the as you said, the softer side of jihad. How does it help us to understand maybe some of those other kinds of more conventional political science types of questions? Yeah, that's uh, that's a core cool question. Actually, I would say that it is essential to start to get into the mindset of the terrorist. Uh, how what is it that appeals to him? I and mean, we can we can find that by looking at the poetry. It, what what many researchers tend to do is look at what we think is important from our point, our Western point of view, uh, and pick out the pick out the arguments mm-hmm. and the 
logic that looks important to us and the poetry totally reverses that it shows us what these groups think is important in attracting um, <coughs> attracting young men to them and you know nowhere is this more important than the whole question of logic what's fascinating to me is that in the articles uh, the longer articles that jihadists write they pepper their arguments with Quran with hadith and with poetry right alongside the holy texts and what this does in the case of poetry is it can it can lead an argument into an emotional climax mm -hmm. and not a logical one and so you sort of build up and you build up and you build up your and then there is no great logic that seals the argument it all ends in passion and emotion and that's the bit that we tempt to miss. And you think that's an important part of like the group cohesion and the, the kind of motivations for, for sure. people to fight and to sacrifice. For sure. And, you know, it's that there's a lot of um, material that is designed not to reflect reality, to, but to paint a completely alternative reality. Mm -hmm. it, you know, the, the poetry shows us a parallel universe in which these people's brains are living. Um, and it's not the universe that, uh, uh, I hesitate to call it two-dimensional, but that a sort of flat-packed mm -hmm, political mm -hmm. and social science would have us um, research. It, it, it's, it's got another right. element to it. And, and let me give you an example of that. The, the whole idea of the suicide bomber. Um, you know, we have a picture of... Um, a scene of carnage on our screens or we, we, we read about it in our newspapers, the poetry paints something completely different, a parallel reality, which is uh, Martyr died, smile on his lips, he smells of musk, he's sitting in meadows, of sweet waters, uh, surrounded by virgins, he's having a great time, it's completely different from the reality that we see. Mm -hmm. And if we're too... Um, realistic and scientific about our work, we'll always miss that aspect. Now, thinking about the appeal or the, the social role of, of things like poetry, imagine it would be very different if you have like a group of people in a training camp somewhere in Afghanistan or Yemen versus somebody sitting there in, in, in Oxford uh, listening to it on, the, on their computer and potentially being radicalized. How does the social context of the reception of these poems change their their impact or their meaning? Oh, that's incredibly important. Uh, I don't have data or analysis on that specific point, but I do have uh, something important to say, which is when we're looking at what radicalizes you know, this big mm -hmm. question, we often tend to broad brush it, and we like to think that you know, here are the top three things. And of course, we totally miss the point that it's utterly different depending on audience. Now, I am not suggesting that groups of young men sitting in the centre of London or Paris or Brussels are uh, getting high and attracted by this kind of classical Arabic poetry. I'm sure they're not. But in the environments in the field, inside the Middle East, quite often they are and of course that will also vary from mm -hmm. place to place but um this matters because while so many researchers sit in their offices in the west looking at dabiq magazine of the islamic state because it happens to be in english and appeals to western youth we're missing this whole 
dynamic of what radicalizes and attracts people inside the Middle East in communities that are remote and therefore creates the safe havens to which the foreign fighters can go. Mm -hmm. You know, it's hugely important. But in the West, I think we've seen a slight morphing of the whole poetic tradition. Instead, we see a much simpler kind of beat, rhyme, meter, rhythm, which is then put to music and turned into nashib, mm-hmm. um, anashid or anthems, if you like. And that's often got a video um, accompanying it, and it's terribly catchy. Uh, that's something that you know you can kind of sing along to very easily and get to grips with in basic Arabic, even if you're not a native Arabic speaker. Aimed at a less sophisticated audience and yes. more of a it's more of a recruitment sort of thing rather than an in-group solidarity type of thing. I think so. And then and then it becomes in-group solidarity because um, it's good to, you know, you have to know the top 10 nasheeds. You're in the group. Everyone knows the words. To, it's a bit like as a student, you, everyone has to know the words of Monty Python or something. You know, <laughs> it's something that gives that makes you part of that group identity. And interestingly, actually, even in, in uh, Yemen now, um, I noticed that there were some complaints from clerics at some of the battlefronts inside Yemen saying, gosh, our young Mujahideen, uh, sorry, these are radical clerics, mm-hmm, obviously, mm-hmm. our young Mujahideen are now singing nasheeds more easily and happily and naturally than they are reciting Quran. Um, what's going on? So I'm curious about the, um, you know, moving back into the academic side, like the reception of this kind of work in the two kind of audiences where where you live, academic. Uh, so on the one hand, you know, how do the terrorism scholars feel about this kind of cultural research? And on the other hand, how do the Middle East studies scholars feel about focusing on the on this specific jihadist uh, realm? Um, how can I put this diplomatically? <laughs> the terrorism studies scholars, I think, are generally quite fascinated by this and accept that it has been a largely understudied part of the field. Uh, and presumably has an impact, especially given that my mm-hmm. research showed that uh, you know, 19%, nearly a fifth of my data sample of jihadist publications included poetry or had poetry in it. So there's a there's kind of a, a clear case there that this is something they should care about. Yes. And so they're receptive and to... It, it helped to be able to quantify it a little bit. They <laughs> like that, whereas li- literature scholars don't normally quantify what they right. do. Middle East studies scholars or... Uh, it, as we rather embarrassingly call it in Oxford, Oriental Studies, probably a bit less enthusiastic <laughs> about moving into the realms of jihad scholarship. In in, in the UK, at least, we tend mm-hmm. to find that these fields are, are quite separate. There's a there's a sort of hardcore academic field which doesn't really look at modern terrorism studies, and then there's a, uh, a modern terrorism studies field which mm-hmm. um, doesn't integrate that well into the uh, old traditional university system. Right. Well, it's just a fascinating example of kind of interdisciplinary work in uh, in its truest sense. Um, and it, it, it's fascinating to see that the emergence of this type of scholarship. Um, and again, you know, I, I studied a lot of this stuff, but it would never have occurred to me to look at this particular type of cultural production. Um, so so this, I think it's really fascinating. Um, you know, when you look at, uh, at look at Yemen today or you look at, um, uh, you know, kind of the jihadist milieu as a whole, uh, 
have you seen any signs of kind of changing themes or changing types of poetry as, you know, kind of waxing and waning with the rise of the Islamic State and the collapse of the Islamic State or, you know, kind of changes in the real world? Or do you see it more as kind of a consistent set of themes and uh, uh, that, you know, kind of stays roughly the same regardless of what's happening out there in the real world? Uh, there have been some changes. I think the poetry has remained pretty constant. Mm. But where I would identify the change is in the media uh, through which it's propagated. So as the Yemen war and the jihad movement waxes and wanes, um, the urgency of the message and the pressure under which the groups uh, suffer uh, means that they have to propagate their message in different ways. So we've, for example, seen a shift from 2008 to 2011 from the big family-style magazine that jihadists mm -hmm, produced, mm -hmm. which had loads of poetry in it, to then with the arrival of the Arab Spring, a short newsletter format, then with the arrival of the war to, to for example, much more snappy film series, uh, Min al-Midan, for example, you know, from the battlefield, which mm -hmm. were bit more Islamic State style and perhaps um, mm -hmm. influenced the broader jihad movement um, in terms of, you know, slick, snappy production. Not much room for poetry in that. But in the personal correspondence and internal group um, dynamics, which I am able to access through being inside their telegram mm -hmm. feeds, uh, obviously not as myself, um, I, the poetry is still very much bandied about everything from, you know, we hate you infidels to, oh, I'm sad for your loss, my comrade brother. That's really fascinating. We've been speaking with Elizabeth Kendall, Senior Research Fellow at Pembroke College of Oxford University. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for asking me.